he even says, uh, I haven't cried like that since I was a child. And uh, Sam being the quirky girl that she is, she's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta capture that. We, got, we gotta keep it for posterity. Yeah, puts it in like a little paper cup. A little paper cup, yeah. Mm -hmm. Welcome to In Out Points, a film analysis podcast by a video producer and an amateur movie buff. I'm Josh, the video producer. And I'm Val, the amateur movie buff. Today we're talking about Garden State. The one thing we want to point out for all of our films that we do that there are spoilers, so you yep. might want to watch the film before listening to the podcast episode. Yep, you've got some homework. So, Garden State. This is actually one of my favorite films. It was released in 2004. It was written, directed, and starring Zach Braff from Scrubs. Yes. <laughs> it also stars Natalie Portman, Peter Sarsgaard, and Ian Holm. Mm -hmm. The cinematographer was Lawrence Schur, he also, who also did uh, Joker recently. This film grossed $35.2 million against only a $2.5 million budget. Well. It premiered at Sundance and had a limited release in the summer of 2004. I actually saw this in the theaters when I was 17. Nice. This became one of my favorite films after you showed it to me. I have heard about it before, but I really didn't know what it was about. And once I saw it, I fell in love with the quirkiness and the charm of it. And it's really a nice, heartwarming film about a person... Uh, finding themselves? Uh, yeah, about a person finding themselves, reinventing themselves, and finding a new... Um, and about a person coming into adulthood, a rite of passage film so to speak, even mm. though he's an adult. It's it's a, it's a almost like an adult teen romantic comedy drama. Yeah, I read mm. I read a quote from, from Zach Braff uh, that he says, you know, uh, a person will go through physical puberty in their teens, mm -hmm. but they'll go through mental puberty in their 20s. And mm -hmm. this is how he felt when he was writing this film. And this is, you know, how he felt how he envisioned the main character of Andrew Largeman. Mm -hmm. I think I, I definitely agree with that statement because once we get past teenagerhood and we finish college, we're kind of stuck in, in this existential kind of limbo where we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do next. And that can be both a good question and a confusing question so it all depends on how we take it and where we go from there absolutely so can you tell us what garden state is about so this film is about a man named andrew largeman who has just found out that his mother has passed away this really kicks off the events of the rest of the film we really find out just moments after he gets this news through just um, as the term that I've heard a lot, show rather than telling, showing rather than telling, that this man is on a lot of medications, that he's disconnected from the reality of his job, he's really a disillusioned, dissatisfied kind of person, and he travels back to his home state of New Jersey to uh, see his family, his friends, and of course to attend his mother's funeral. And through all the visits and all the events that uh, that occur from these encounters, uh, he learns more about himself. He comes in, in, he comes to terms with his past, and he learns to move on with his life and create a new life for himself. Yeah, and it's it's really important that you brought up the show don't tell aspect of it because literally the first thing we find out about Andrew is that his his mom dies. Mm -hmm. Right after that. We have a series, a sequence of scenes that tell us about who Andrew is, with really out any, with with little to no dialogue. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the first shot that we see him after the dream sequence is a dream sequence in the in the airplane. But the first shot we see is he's in this sterile white apartment. Mm -hmm. The next shot we see is him opening up the 
the medicine cabinet and it's just full of uh, of medication mm-hmm. just <clears throat> those little orange bottles of, yeah and then they're, uh, prescription they're, pills. they're yeah prescription bottles perfectly lined up you know to tell us okay this this guy is clearly medicated for some reason we don't we don't right. quite know yet mm-hmm. the next shot is him in in traffic clearly frustrated unhappy with his life we also notice that he's driving a white car which kind of ties back into the sterileness of his apartment mm-hmm. and to top it all off the next shot we see that he's left the the gas pump in his car mm-hmm. as he's going into work he's just completely like asleep at the wheel exactly not literally but really yeah just asleep and he's also, at the wheel of his life yes and he's also wearing kind of like a like a beige very kind of you know colorless shirt mm-hmm and it turns out he's working at this Vietnamese restaurant. He's he's you know he's an actor, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll find out. But he's working at this Vietnamese restaurant, so clearly he's not he's not as successful as he wants to be. Yeah, it's not a glamorous life. Exactly, and he's humiliated by the by the patrons at the uh, at, at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. But like you said, he he travels back to his home state of New Jersey, which is also my home state, which is also my home state. So. We do have a little tie to the to the state. However, much of this film takes place in North Jersey, which we're from South Jersey, which is basically two completely different states, but still a connection to the Garden State, which is the name of the film and also the nickname for the state. Right. So there's one thing I want to point out about some of these early scenes is that it, it feels like they often mix dreams with reality. So the first scene of the, the entire film is a dream sequence of Andrew in an airplane that's that's going down and yeah. everyone around him is is freaking out and he's emotionless. Yeah. And he looks up at the where normally the the light or the the, the air know, switch the, the, the air switches and he sees that his his phone is there yeah. his answer machines cuz his that's when his dad's calling him to let him know his his mother's dead. Yep. Also w- when he's in the Vietnamese restaurant you can hear his boss talking to him over the intercom but he's actually speaking as if he's the airport announcer because he's he's talking about andrew's flight yeah. to new jersey yeah so it's, an, it's I, I like it it's almost like a scene transition like it's used as a scene transition yeah it's, kind it's of really well parts. done yeah yeah uh, but i think even more so just on a like a subconscious level it's it kind of reflective of his medicated state which yeah. we'll learn more about as yeah. he gets back to new jersey yeah and just a side note going back to the airplane going down bit you would think first that perhaps he's not um in distress because he's a serene person you even have that beautiful um southeast asian uh music playing and you think oh well he's serene and he 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 doesn't let stress bother him and then you find out that he's just really emotionally suppressed inside he Mm -hmm. he doesn't feel anything it's not like he has control of his emotions to that a powerful state it's that the medication is controlling his emotions and he's that sedated on the inside yeah and that will come into play much later in the film and to an important mm-hmm. uh, aspect so he's he's at his mother's funeral one thing i want to point out here is the colors are very cold yeah in this in this scene because obviously you know his mother has, has passed away and this is this is her funeral and this is where he meets uh, Peter Sarsgaard's character, uh, Mark, who knew Andrew when he lived in New Jersey before, and he's a grave digger, so that's why he was at the at the funeral. Right. Yep. And the way that they introduce his character, I just want to mention how the humor is really subtle, really dry, almost cynical, in that you're looking at this at this coffin being buried, and it's supposed to be this beautiful ceremony with the mother's best friend singing a song to commemorate the occasion i think it was his aunt actually his aunt Mm -hmm. okay okay and then kind of the camera lets you see what's going off to the side and it's these two grave diggers waiting to do their job yep so you it's it kind of undercuts this what's supposed to be this beautiful symbolic ceremony yeah it's funny that you mentioned that because when andrew goes over to mark and starts talking to him he mentions there's a party later that evening, and he's like, "Oh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go right over there after we bury your mom." Yeah, <laughs> right after we bury your mom, no big deal. But again, they have to handle it like 
it's what it is it's it's their job they don't have emotional ties it's very clinical for them too yeah just like you know there's other professions where people have to deal with what are sorrowful what are situations filled with sorrow and they the best way that they can handle it is to detach themselves from yeah i wonder you know it, it seems like detachment yeah. and suppression is kind of a, one of the themes of this film mm-hmm. with not just andrew but there's other characters that also deal with their own kind of personal demons as well we also find out later at andrew's father's house that they have a strained relationship mm-hmm. because in their first scene together the first time we actually see them on screen together his father played really well by ian holm mm-hmm. says that he's glad that andrew was able to to make it to the to the funeral but the way that he says it was he's you know he's glad that you could fit it in yeah, you know in his in. in his schedule there's always a bite there's always a like a yep. like an extra stab at the end of his yeah, words exactly so clearly there's there's some strain there which we're going to find out exactly why what what caused this and in the same scene he reveals to his dad that he's having these he's really intense headaches or really short intense headaches so it's actually revealed in this scene that his father is a psychiatrist right and also his psychiatrist yeah so he sends him to a to a doctor so so when i first hear about the quick lightning flash headaches i start to wonder does is andrew a mild hypochondriac he's been told all of his life that there's something wrong with him that's why he has all those medication bottles Mm -hmm. that you see and he's taking all these pills so i start wondering the reason why he brings up the headaches is is it because that he's looking for things that could be signs that there's other things wrong with him and that leads us to him asking his father about him about these symptoms which leads us to the scene where andrew is in the waiting room at a neurologist's office and this is where he meets sam played by natalie portman like you said and this leads us to this really sweet scene between sam and andrew where they start out as strangers until uh, sam is listening to this song and she tells Andrew, hey, listen to this song. She puts the headphones on his head and says, this song changed my life, and I think it will change yours too. Yeah, and it's a really good example of the use of diegetic sound in Mm -hmm. film, where if you're not familiar with diegetic versus non-diegetic sound, what that is is diegetic sound is anything that takes place within the story space. So it's what your characters can hear. So think of something like Rocky. You Mm -hmm. know, think of the Rocky theme that's playing when Rocky is running down Broad Street and then ultimately to the art museum. Mm -hmm. Rocky himself cannot hear that music, only we can. So that's Mm -hmm. what's considered non-diegetic sound. Conversely, what Andrew's listening to, he's listening to a song by The Shins, which is part of the soundtrack that he handpicked himself, and we'll, we'll touch more on that yeah. later. But he, can, he himself can hear the music, as can we. So that's mm-hmm. diegetic sound. Some directors will only use that type of music diegetically. Like Christopher Nolan, he obviously has big scores from Hans Zimmer in a lot of his films. If he uses a lyrical song... He uses it diegetically, mm-hmm. a la Inception is, is one of those examples. Okay. So there's your difference between diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Okay. So the way that I remember it, the, 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 way, I, the way I can interpret it is uh, diegetic sound mean, means that the character will be able to digest the sound. Non-diegetic is characters can't digest the sound. They don't hear it, only we do. Yeah, exactly. That's one but, way that I can remember it. But more importantly, they both serve the story exactly the one thing i wanted to mention before we continue with the the neurologist scene is the previously Andrew goes to that party with Mark. Yeah, the one you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, and he ends up trying ecstasy, which is kind of funny considering he's on tons of medication anyway, yeah. and he's taking this this drug. And there's this really interesting scene where there's a time lapse where, and it's kind of almost like the opening dream sequence in the yeah. airplane, where everyone's partying around him and he's just motionless on the yeah. couch. Yeah. Which I, th- I think rock. is really impressive. Um, but the reason I wanted to bring that up is because when he does go into the neurologist office, we see that he's got uh, Sharpie all over him yeah. 
with lots of uh, inappropriate uh, things and symbols and words. And almost like self-deprecating words, too. Self-deprecating words, yeah. But it's revealed that there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah. And he even says in the in the neurologist's office, he he doesn't even know if he should have been medicated. Yeah. It just occurred to him that maybe he didn't need to be. Yeah, and he mentions, well, he brings up that his father is his psychiatrist and the neurologist responds wait what that yeah that, that should have ended years ago that should have never even happened like you don't want a bias really in the medication pre- exactly <laughs> prescription so uh we also find out that he's that some of the medication that he's on lithium antidepressants i mean that's for really really serious um mental health issues uh lithium i believe is used in bipolar Yep. Uh, disorder and depressants for multiple reasons and but there's nothing really at this point that tells you that andrew is yeah needs that kind of medication yeah exactly uh, you start wondering like was he ever diagnosed with bipolar with severe depression with with uh some sort of violent tendencies no you don't you you don't see evidence of that you just see that he had medication so before we continue with the plot of the film, I did want to point out that the guy who plays the Medieval Times Knight is Jim Parsons, mm-hmm. who play, obviously plays Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. But this was 2004, so this was three years before Big Bang Theory came out. Mm-hmm. But he's, I know we were kind of joking when we watched it again recently, that he's essentially playing Sheldon in this oh, yeah. role. Oh, yeah. By the way, it says balls on your face. Asshole. My mom didn't. It's hard to not see Sheldon when you see him, almost like when you see Rain Wilson in some of his other uh, characters. The, the 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 internal like actor default, whatever whatever they use as their mm-hmm. like shining like um, character acting, really peeks through, and and you can you can sense that. Yeah, yeah. So right after we're done with the neurologist's office scene we see that andrew picks up sam uh from the office because sam doesn't have a ride home and we see the we see her get into andrew's um motorcycle it's like a world war ii motorcycle or something like that that Mm -hmm. was left by andrew's grandfather to specifically andrew i think it was he said it was the only thing he's ever left him yeah yeah and so he he treasures that motorcycle you can see he really loves it and it Again, it's another one of these elements that adds more charm and quirkiness to the film. Uh, if he was on just a regular bike, it would be you would lose the charm of some of the scenes where yeah, he's you definitely riding couldn't around. see him riding like a Harley Davidson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Andrew takes Sam back to her house, and this is where we meet and Andrew meets uh, Sam's mother and Sam's kind of foster brother. Who are, I just like to point out, they're like immediately, this is the first time they met them, but they're immediately welcoming welcoming of him. Yeah. And bring him into their home with open arms, and they've yeah. never met him before. So I think what we'll find out later is kind of the relationship he had with his mom wasn't as yeah. warm as her relationship with her mom. Yeah, we definitely see a difference there. And... It's another example of also the color palette difference in his house. Everything is kind of really cold and gray, not just because his mother just died, but just it's a richer looking house, but it's a more like, sterile, sterile, colder looking yeah. house. Yeah. While as soon as we enter Sam's house, everything's warm and pink and yeah. orange. And, and also, yeah. uh, for better, or for worse, it's, you know, kind of messy, I would say. It's yeah. not... But it's well lived in. It's, yeah, it's very well yeah. lived in. Clearly, they, they, they don't come from money like Andrew does. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is actually important because I think Sam as a character balances Andrew out quite a bit. Yeah. You know, in the term in, in that she's free spirited. Her family comes from lesser means. And she really kind of owns her own flaws. She does a, yeah. She admits to being a pathological liar. So she's accepting. She knows who she is already. She's yeah. accepting her flaws. And before we go forward with that, she admits quite freely that she's a pathological liar. And you, you would think, my goodness, this is probably like a terrible person. Like they lie to everybody all the time. But then you learn 
later that she suffers from epilepsy and and it kind of reshapes your understanding of why she lies so much all the time it could possibly be a habit that she's gotten from trying to make excuses for her condition in the mm -hmm. past so it's something that comes now easily to her this lying because she's had to do that before with maybe explaining away her condition yeah. she was embarrassed about it before and we see her later explain that this is that her condition is something that she's also come to she's also come to terms with it's she says you know sometimes you just want to scream and cry i'm paraphrasing here but um but it's you know you can't you also can't escape it you just have to deal with it and you have to look for the good moments in your life to enjoy and celebrate instead yeah and in some ways she's speaking like for herself but yeah. she's really speaking for to andrew yeah i think she mentions also working at a a law office but yeah. we never actually see that so i'm not entirely sure if that's true or not that could be part of the one of the lies that she she tells i could see her working as like a like she didn't mention that she had like a law degree or anything so maybe she's like a legal secretary or something uh i can i can believe that sure uh because she does have to wear the helmet and she she this special helmet for uh yeah. in case uh, um she has a an episode and uh she says how she was embarrassed at work to wear it, but then you just kind of have to laugh at yourself, she says, and, mm -hmm. and just that's how you come to terms with um, either a condition or maybe some past baggage. Like she tells the audience and tells Andrew, there's ways to um, work around things that bother you or things you have to live with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No one's perfect. No one's perfect, <laughs> no. So back to the warmer colors, I think that's yes. a really good point, actually. Whenever Andrew is with Sam, the colors are typically warmer. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about the his mother's funeral scene, which was very cold. Mm -hmm. and his, his house was very cold, but inside her house, very warm. And it turns out that one of her hamsters ha has died, so she has yeah. to... Jelly. Jelly. She has to bury him in the backyard. So here we are. This is our second funeral of mm -hmm. the film. And this funeral seems like it's more heartwarming mm -hmm. than emotional. the than his mother's funeral yeah and actually andrew opens up more in this funeral than he does at his mother's funeral which is which is crazy yeah and the colors are are so you know warm and there's the the, the autumn leaves are all around the the pool and the and the backyard and we start to see that he's kind of opening up a little bit yeah. because of sam and in reflection of that the colors become a little bit warmer throughout the film and i have to believe that that was a conscious choice from zach braff the yeah. director yeah and i just want to mention that it is yet another example of type of humor that is reoccurrent throughout the film you see natalie portman and zach braff walk up to this little pet cemetery and you see her holding uh this little cardboard box with jelly and then they just straight cut to this pet cemetery and you see holy crap there's like 20 pets buried in there already and you're thinking oh my god and of course you know animal, animal cruelty is horrible but just there's a it's a comedic cutaway that just makes you think oh my god this woman's a terrible caretaker this has happened so many times before and then she explains well most of them are goldfish it's circle of life yeah unfortunately these smaller animals die pretty quickly yeah i, I think he's <laughs> he does a really excellent job of of balancing that comedy with drama yeah and in this same scene i forgot to mention this is when he actually tells sam that his mom just died yeah because she yeah. asks him why he you know why he's home you could see like she's kind of surprised wow your your mom just died when a couple days ago yeah and we're sitting here burying this this hamster yeah but i do i feel like that was this is one of the turning points in the film wow yeah i mean this is uh i know it's not that we're bad pet owners or anything. It's just, you know, we've had so many of them over the years. Besides, a lot of these are fish. So when Andrew gets back from Sam's house, he has another conversation with his dad who insists that they need to talk. Obviously, there's some unfinished business that they need to attend to in their relationship. But Andrew kind of dodges this a little bit and they don't have this conversation yet. Right. So Andrew is avoiding him and we're left with the question of what exactly is it that they're not talking about? Mm -hmm. And that question is answered later 
in another scene, it's a post pool party scene. Um, we see uh, during the, the pool party, uh, Sam and Andrew uh, getting closer together. They're talking about their family, their past and, and, and such. And a little bit later, they're drying off with Mark uh, next to a fireplace. And this is where Andrew reveals that when he was a child, a young child, I believe nine years old, when he was nine years old, he had a an argument with his mom. He was angry at her because she was depressed all the time and he really wanted somebody that was happy. He wanted somebody who was affectionate and, and happy uh, uh, with him um, all the time. And so out of anger, he pushes his mom, who trips over a dishwasher door, uh, hits her spine around the neck area which ends up paralyzing her from the from the neck down yep and this is really where his emotional life you could say kind of stopped which uh by that i mean um his father starts putting him on medication he gets sent away to boarding school and he doesn't get any kind of attention from his family again and I think it's important to note here that while he's confessing, I think he's also accepting it finally. Yeah. You know, he says that it's it's crazy how, how much of his life has been determined by a broken latch on a... Yeah. It was an accident. It was yeah. a complete freak accident. And mm -hmm. I think he finally accepts it. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't blame himself anymore. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, he now can... Later in the film, but he now is ready to confront his father and say, you know, it's not my fault. It was a piece of plastic mm -hmm. that caused um, his mother to be injured. Any any nine year old out of anger can you know you know push a parent because they're not emotionally mature, you know. But uh, this freak accident ended up determining so much of his life. What fifteen to twenty years he was in a mental prison. Yeah, I think he's 26, so we're, we're talking 17 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the room falls silent, and Mark goes off to help one of the ladies uh, work a hot tub, whatever. He wants to kind of get out of the situation. And uh, Sam kind of breaks the tension by saying, Hey, you want to see how I can tap dance? You're in it right now, aren't you? What do you mean? My mom always says that when she can see I'm like working something out in my head. She's like, you're in it right now. And I'm looking at you and you're telling me this story and you're definitely in it right now. I think you're right. I am in it. And I like you. <laughs> so there's that. I guess I have that. <laughs> I can tap dance? You want to see me tap dance? I would love to see you tap dance. Like she diverts uh, the importance of the moment away. She just kind of says, "Okay, you know, you've you've had your moment. We don't have to wallow in it. You know, we can yeah. we can now recover and move on." And she's a quirky, whimsical, free spirited character that I think is needed in this kind of film. Yeah, I think that's called a manic pixie dream girl. It's mm -hmm. a kind of a trope that's used in many films. Mm -hmm. I think in some films it's a little overused where they're to me, at least, a little bit on the annoying side. Like, nobody is this super happy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's this perfect girl that apparently any guy would want. Like, she's the, this free-spirited thing. But in this case, she's more realistic. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I feel like she's definitely... It's more subtle here. Yeah. It's more relatable. And um, it works for, for this film yeah. and for the main character. Yeah, I think instead of being... Manic pixie, she's quirky warm. There you go. Yeah. 
So one of the things that we do find out about Mark is that he's actually been stealing jewelry off of the people that he buries and then mm -hmm. he pawns it off. Yeah. And that's what leads them on sort of the side quest to find this this thing for, for Andrew. He says he has a, a gift for him before yeah. he leaves. A go-away present. A going-away present. Yeah. Yeah. So through a series of different scenes, interesting scenes and locations, different items that Mark is trading along the way or yeah. kind of unsure what he's doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, we... We we start off going through a um, kind of like a hardware store. Hardware store, like a like a mom and pop sort of hardware store. He gets uh, um, a box of knives and pretends like he's returning it to get some cash for it. Yeah, it's called Handy World. I think is the name of the place. Really? Oh yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yep. And uh, the, one of the most memorable lines from the film is uttered by Mark, where you just you. you you can't forget it. He's talking to the, um, to the cashier, and and she asks him, "What's wrong with them?" Well, I, I saw these knives on TV, and they just they don't cut cans. They're not they, sharp enough. They don't cut cans. They don't cut cans. Yeah, I think we've we've brought we've said that a couple times in our own life. Yeah, yeah. Just as, as, a, a, as a reference and a joke. Yeah, just as a reason. Well, why doesn't you know? Why don't you? Uh, why don't we want this? Why don't we do this or what? Well, it can't cut cans. That's why. Yeah. So from there, we're led to. Well, first, real quick, I think what Zach Braff is trying to tell us there is that Mark is this character that's very thrifty, and he kind of makes his, he even says, like, he makes his own money. Yeah. Kind of, you know, what's that that saying? Stealing from Yeah, like uh, Peter he, to pay Paul. Yeah, he, he doesn't like lending or borrowing money. It, just, it, it complicates things. It complicates mm -hmm. uh, kind of relationships and he looks uh, he, he probably has seen that in his life before and so he wants to be completely self-sufficient uh even if that means um kind of lying to the cashier about where he got the knives from exactly. just to get some money so he's in a way he's he's kind of stealing from the from handy world but again he makes his own money he he doesn't want to be dependent on somebody else and it's possible that maybe that's what he saw happen with his mother possibly i mm -hmm. mean um you don't see a father figure in his life and the mom kind of doesn't seem like she's on a career path of any kind. Well, and she's, she's also yeah. dating the the Jim Parsons character, the knight. Yeah. Who's clearly younger than her and younger than Mark. Yeah, yeah, much much younger. So she kind of has no direction in life at all. And her career choices up to this point have been to include herself in a pyramid scheme. So she's not too smart with money, it seems. And he wants to be smarter and independent with money yeah. no matter what that yeah. means so eventually this takes him down to newark which when when i hear him say that in the film it's kind of weird for me growing up in south jersey where newark is much oh, northern yeah, yeah. but no, where no. he's from it's uh, it's 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 southern so they they end up at this this quarry yeah this you know where this this family is living there in a in a boat yeah almost like a like an ark you would say mm-hmm so, which is kind of funny because the original title for this film was called Large's Ark. Oh, okay. Okay. And unfortunately, it didn't it didn't test very well. But mm -hmm. I think I think the title of Garden State is much better because you could there's kind of double meaning there. Yeah, yeah. It's both kind of a um, rebirth in a sense mm -hmm. for Andrew, and of course, it's the nickname the of the state. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. <clears throat> In the scene, it, this is where Mark retrieves the the item for for Andrew. We don't know what it is yet, mm -hmm. but it seems like in talking with this these two characters, so there's a kind of a caretaker of the quarry who kind of guards the quarry, his mm -hmm. wife, and they have a, a young uh, a, a baby. Yeah. Um, and which, which I just want to side mention, the husband talks about how you know you, you just got to live your own life, and even if that means living on the side of a quarry, whatever makes you happy. The wife never really utters a word. So I start wondering sometimes, I don't know, wife, are you okay with your baby living in like a one um, bedroom apartment? We never get your opinion. But the point is that, you know, you find your own happiness wherever yeah. that may be. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a there's a side movie in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see that. So at the end of the scene, they're, they they walk back into the rain and Andrew says to the, to the guy, Albert, guarding the abyss, he says, good luck exploring the infinite abyss. Mm -hmm. And then he says in response... You too. You too. Mm -hmm. So clearly they're on two different journeys here. Yeah. But we're kind of talking about the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and th- and this moment, this is this is kind of one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, where I think it, this is another turning point. I think for Andrew as well, right. where he gets up on top of the yellow uh, little bus. Little, I don't. Uh, I think it's a. Um, I think it's like a crane, like a like a broken down crane. Oh, okay. Like a little sh- uh, kind of compartment, mm-hmm. and he gets and he just lets out this this scream. This you know this freeing. How would you kind of describe it? Kind of a uh, freeing like bellow. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, people sometimes have that out of just frustration, but I think for him, it's letting out all of his past frustration and mm-hmm. and just experiencing relief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he and he kisses uh, Sam in the same in the same scene, and uh, there's also I, I'm gonna guess it's well one of two only special effects in the film. They do this kind of like this really uh, large zoom out, mm-hmm. but it's clearly a digital zoom. I mean, this was 2004, so, right. but even watching it now, you can clearly tell that it was like an effect. Mm, okay. But they needed to, they needed to show the vastness of that abyss in that moment when he, when they let out the scream. Mm-hmm, right. It turns out that the gift that Mark found for Andrew was this necklace that used to belong to Andrew's mother. I believe that she was buried with it and he was able to retrieve it for Andrew. And Which confirms what we thought earlier because mm-hmm. you don't know at that point. You know that he was stealing people's jewelry, but you're not quite sure what the item was. So it was confirmed that he actually did steal the yeah. this necklace and sold it, but you know did right by Andrew and was able to get it back. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not just a simple necklace. It looks like a simple trinket, but uh, to Andrew, it holds a lot of meaning mm-hmm. because it actually is from one of his best memories with his mother, where she uh, would hold him while he was sick. And while she's rocking Andrew in his memory, he remembers the necklace making noise because there's a little ball in like a little glass chamber yeah it's almost like a little game that you could play yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's, it, it's reminiscent of one of those little hand games mm-hmm. that you could play and uh he remembers uh his mother in the best light in that memory and at the end of him retelling this memory to sam while they're hanging out in an empty bathtub back in his house well it's also Keep in mind, it, it's not just an empty bathtub. It's a bathtub that his mother died in. It's true. Yeah. So yeah. also, and I don't, not, not to interject, but in this scene, this is the first time that we're in Andrew's house where the colors are now warmer. That's true. Yeah. They're a little bit, they went from- Because I believe gray. there's candlelight. Yeah. 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 It went from like a cold gray to a little bit, little, little bit warmer, mm-hmm. orange and beige kind of um, atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the, recalling the memory, he actually starts to cry. It's the first time first that time. Yep. he's cried in a long time. He he even says, uh, I haven't cried like that since I was a child. And uh Sam being the quirky girl that she is, she's like, Oh, I gotta I gotta capture that. We got, we gotta keep it for posterity. Yeah, and puts it in like a little paper cup. A little paper cup, yeah. hmm Yeah, and he, he even says and I think this this line um uh, is, is important based on the fact that he is showing emotion. He says he feels he just feels safe with her. Yeah. Yeah, he feels fully emotionally alive now, fully open, able to receive another person emotionally and to be vulnerable around another person emotionally. So this is another uh, point, turning point for him as well. Yeah, definitely. There's kind of an implied love scene, which I think is really well done. It's It didn't have to be, you know, you didn't actually have to see them like... Yeah making out and doing all that it was it was very implied the camera kind of just flies over them in bed together yeah the morning in the morning after yeah yeah, so they're both just asleep yeah and you could see that you know they're both at peace yeah Mm -hmm. and i think because of that this leads to him becoming whole with his dad yeah now i i wanted to point out that in a lot of films there would be this scene where Two people, you know, obviously have a strained relationship and then they make up and then they probably, you know, embrace with like a big hug and everything's perfect. Yeah. But I think what's really realistic here is that I wanted to bring up is he basically goes from being strained to neutral and neutral with his dad. 
is good is good enough for is both good of enough them. for both of them mm-hmm. yeah yeah did yeah. you yeah did you want to kind of elaborate on that uh it, it seems like it's the first time that we see him and maybe it's the first time for him in his in his life too that he's stood up to his dad mm-hmm. uh before there would just be these kind of passive aggressive remarks but now he just straight up tells his dad this wasn't my fault you have to accept that it, this wasn't my fault and I'm not going to blame myself for this anymore. And he, I think, uh, stands up to him uh, in, a, in more than one way, not just verbally, but now uh, he's not going to, he's definitely not going to be uh, his dad's patient anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's going to be more independent and find out his answers about any mental issues that he has on his yeah. own. Yeah, and do you remember yeah. what he does? Instead of, there's no hug, there's no handshake. Do you remember what he does, though? He puts his hand on his father's chest, mm-hmm. kind of just like, this is where we are, and this like, is... Like, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here, and this is uh, our relationship right now, and his father kind of reiterates it in in, um, in almost same words where this, you know, we're not great uh sniping at each other and we're we're never going to be these great buddies but we're neutral and that's good enough so andrew is going back to los angeles mm-hmm. they're at the newark airport which i've been it's uh, not one of my favorite airports, but him and Sam are, are saying their goodbyes. And he he says something along the lines of, you know, this isn't the end. This is this is just, you know, a pause. It's an ellipsis. Yeah. Kind of like, uh, you know, I just got to go back to Los Angeles, figure some, some mm-hmm. stuff out. Uh, regardless, in real life, you have a plane ticket. You have to get back on that plane. And even if you're not going to be staying in Los Angeles long, you got to pick up your last paycheck and, you know, close out your apartment, whatever it is. But the implication here is that he needs some time to figure things out in Los Angeles because he still has a career there. He still needs to figure out his life. And um, Sam is obviously in tears because she's afraid that uh, as soon as he leaves, he's not going to want to come back. Yeah, I mean, and like most stories like that, that that happens all the time, where you think there's going to be that happy ending, and then clearly there's not. Yeah, something something happens, and something happens, or they have to go back to their their regular life. Obviously, when he made this plan to come to New Jersey, he already had that return flight back. So exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's what was. Yeah, you know, he felt obligated to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he has a life in Los Angeles. One yeah, that's what that's what I mean. Like that that return, you know, it wasn't a one, it wasn't a planned one way trip. Right. You know, he mm-hmm. was always planning to go back to Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. And then he ends up falling in love with Sam. He ends up making peace with his father, so he's no longer really uh, feeling repelled by his hometown and his and his family as much anymore. Uh, he has old friends that welcome him back he he seems to have found a second home and so uh after we see him get back on the plane we joyously see him again come off that plane and and meet sam back up again she's in uh, in tears but in a phone booth in a phone booth yep and he decides the heck with los angeles i wasn't happy there i'm happy where i am right now and that's where i'm gonna stay until you know, something else changes. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm happy with where I am right now. When he comes back, you know, she's surprised and confused, but he lays it all out there and says, you know, "This is it. This is life, mm-hmm. and this is the only thing he's ever been sure of, and this is what he's choosing." Exactly. Yeah. He's he's choosing happiness. So what do we do? So Garden State, let's talk about some of the themes in this film. When we were re-watching it, I wrote down a couple of words here. Detox, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. therapy, mm -hmm. acceptance, and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a lot of it is self-acceptance and self-forgiveness. And we see that uh, in Andrew and him uh, dealing with that and uh, finally giving, giving himself um, self-forgiveness, which can be hard for some people to do. It all depends on on the baggage that you hold. But there's also another kind of acceptance that is subtly mentioned in the film. And that is, uh, it, well, it starts with Andrew's mother. She was clinically depressed throughout her whole life. And, and a paraplegic. And a paraplegic, yeah. So she was depressed even before uh, she was injured. And of course, that, that depression continued uh, throughout the rest of her life. And Andrew um, mentioned that you know, during her depression, she just didn't want to feel pain anymore. She wanted it all to end. And so uh, it, it's as if she wanted to accept the pain that she had and just kind of let it all go and in that way leave the, the present world in, in a sense. So a theory that I have about how she did that is something that the aunt brought up during the wake, she said that the mother never really had any kind of interests for most, anything in anything in most of the years that she's known her. And then she said she got a call one day from her at, and, and the mother said, I want to remodel the bathroom. And that she was so passionate in putting all of her efforts into remodeling that bathroom. And we find out that the way that she died was that she drowned in the bathtub. And so it leads me to think that perhaps she accepted her emotional demise by actually maybe um, committing suicide. Yeah, it's really, and I can't find anything online that suggests this, but I think there's some validity to it. Are we to assume that the same bathroom that she died in is the same bathroom that they remodeled? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 what I'm thinking. Yeah, because she she wanted the the bathroom in a certain way. She wanted it perfect, and uh, then you know, and the bathroom is this elaborate bathroom with a big bathtub mm -hmm. and everything like fully, um, uh, like fully like to the uh, the newest kind of styles and 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 the best quality. Um, materials and so it's as if she was planning her own death it's as if she was in a way getting her affairs in order and if she was going to go out she was going to um, die in the best conditions that she wanted to maybe not like the bathroom was the best conditions but it was among a, a, in a lavish bathroom it was in a beautiful setting for her at least and it was for her uh, being uh, paraplegic, uh, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of choices in how she could control uh, how she would go, but uh, maybe one of the things that she could control is the setting in which she passed away. Yeah, and I wonder with Andrew's father being a psychiatrist, I wonder if he picked up on this and and possibly in turn is blaming Andrew for that. I know it's never. Maybe. But that's just something that if, if this theory is to have some legs, I wonder if that's also a possibility. Yeah, possibly. It's it's possible that he blames Andrew for, uh, of course, not just the uh, physical accident, but it's possible that her mental state declined even more uh, after her injury. And so he just hates his son even more. And it kind of also... Um, makes me think that the medication that he gave Andrew ever since he was you know, a really young child was his way of punishing his son. But it's such a cruel punishment when you think about it. He emotionally killed his son. He emotionally stunted his son for the way that the son uh, physically uh, stunted his mother. It's a really uh, cruel way of uh, punishing the child, but... Uh, he seemed to be a really cold person. We don't really know anything else besides that about him. Uh, and so if you start thinking like that, you, you really think, my God, you know, that father really didn't have too much compassion 
for his son. He has his own issues that he can't uh, show his son any warmth or forgiveness until really the mother passes away. Okay, so what's the deal with the Desert Storm trading cards? Yeah, so that's something that Mark mentions. It is one of his little investments. He said, hey, I have these little investments all over the place. And I was curious about this because these are these are real, for, for, for one thing. And I never quite understood the purpose of trading cards unless you're you know, play, playing you know, Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! and you're doing some sort of card battle, whatever. Um, but other than that, they're basically a collector's item. And Mark mentions that, uh, that each card is valuable, but also when you have a full set, it's even more valuable than the sum of its parts. Well, it wasn't he missing a couple, like a Wolf Blitzer or something? Yeah, Which I he think is hilarious that Wolf Blitzer. Blitzer is a card. Yeah, yeah. And, and it really is that there's like a... Um, there's a card for like every politician that had to do with the conflict. It's just to me, it's funny how something that's such a serious political, uh, um, well, political conflict that 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 happened uh, was kind of trivialized in trading cards. So, uh, but it it is a, a real thing, and I did do a brief search. Uh, I believe on eBay you can get the full set for over a thousand dollars, a little over a thousand dollars. So uh, it's it's not like Mark was wrong. They are little investments, just as long as you have the full set. <laughs> we definitely can't talk about this film without talking about the soundtrack, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. This soundtrack was actually handpicked by Zach Braff himself, which is not something that normally happens unless your name is Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. or Christopher Nolan or whatever. But he handpicked this soundtrack and I just wanted to read a quote that uh, that he said when he when talking about it because it kind of also relates to how I when I work and edit videos. Essentially, I made a mix CD with all of the music that I felt was scoring my life at the time I was writing the screenplay. And I think this is kind of important because when I'm working on projects, I will most likely I'm looking for and listening for music first to really decide on the tone and the mood. You know, of the videos that I create. So I can definitely see, you know, someone who is writing a screenplay. And I believe he wrote this when he was in college. Listening to music in his head mm-hmm. that matches the way that he feels and how the tone and the, the, the film should be. Yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. And he, he felt that these songs that were featured in the film were so important that he actually sent a script, a copy of the script out with every song request he made because he had to go and obtain the rights for every song. And mm-hmm. if, he, if he doesn't have the budget for it or if the, the artist could simply say that they're not interested, mm-hmm. they're not going to get those songs. So there's a few fe- uh, songs featured by the, the Shins, mm-hmm. which I think uh, really fit in nicely, one of which is the, the scene where Sam Places puts the, the headphones, headphones on, mm-hmm. uh, on Andrew. And uh, did this mix CD get any awards by any chance? It did actually. It won a uh, a Grammy. It's and it's a Grammy for a compilation. Yes, it's the Grammy Award for Best Compilation Soundtrack Album for Motion Pictures, Television, or Other Visual Media. I, I mean, I don't know how Grammys work, but I was surprised to find out that you can get a Grammy for basically making a mixtape. Yes. I mean, choice is important, and that's part of making art. But I, <laughs> it is a little funny that uh, you can have a non-original score soundtrack the soundtrack itself if if uh you're not interested in the film i would recommend definitely uh listen to the soundtrack it's nice and mellow it's great for a rainy day or whether you're just on the bus and you just want to kind of let your thoughts uh float on by because it's it's beautiful you you can always find something that you like in the soundtrack and it will leave you feeling really Really good inside. Yeah, and what I like that he does in the film too is he uses the soundtrack to kind of take us from scene to scene. He yeah. uses it as a transition piece, which I think is really, for a first-time director, is kind of a high-level technique mm-hmm. and something that, like I was mentioning, a Martin Scorsese is is known for doing masterfully. Just contr- uses music to really control his the pacing and the 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 mood of mm-hmm. the film. I think he does it really well here. Mm-hmm. In terms of critical response, there are some positive and negative negative reviews. 
uh, the uh, Rotten Tomato score right uh, right now, the film sits at mid 80s to high 80s, depending if you're looking at the critical or the, or the audience response, which is pretty good. Um, there, the Chicago Sun Times give the film three out of four stars, and uh, um, quoting here, this is not a perfect movie. It meanders and ambles and makes puzzling detours, but it's smart and unconventional with a good eye for the perfect detail. So that's that's the general idea of the kind of reception that it got. So some of them, uh, some of the critics thought that it was quirky and it really understood the existential dilemma of somebody in the mid-20s, uh, comparing it to The Graduate, while others uh, thought that it was a film that was had some piecemeal scenes that didn't really connect. So it really depends on the audience member, but uh, we would definitely recommend this film. Yeah, and I, I thought for sure that being Zach Braff's first film, I thought, okay, wow, I, this is his first film. He's going to go off and yeah. do tons of films. Didn't really happen that way. He's done another film, Wish You Were Here, in mm -hmm. 2014, which was uh, Kickstarter-funded. Mm -hmm. But other than that, not really. I, I thought for sure he was going to be the next... Judd Apatow? Judd, not, not Judd Apatow, but maybe Woody Allen. In a way, yeah. You know, perhaps, this, yeah. this film has actually been compared to some of Woody Allen's work, like Annie Hall and um, a couple other... Uh, other of his films. Yeah, so maybe, maybe we will see something outside of his work in television where he starts directing again, maybe as he gets older. Yeah, he's clearly he's clearly got the talent for it, so... Mm -hmm. And he's he's got an audience for it. People will watch things like Love, uh, that uh, Netflix show, um, things like Judd Apatow movies and mm -hmm. things that are these indie You know, and you... Bringing up Judd Apatow, I actually, I don't, this to me didn't feel like an Apatow film. Not in the way that things and lines and scenes seem a little bit ad-lib. It, 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 just in the terms of like quirkiness and certain... It's quirky, but it felt yeah. more thoughtful. I just, I, yeah. it felt more real. I didn't, not to say that Judd Apatow is a bad filmmaker or anything like that. You know, I've seen a bunch of his films, but this, this doesn't really compare to me. This is kind of like a different... Just a different type of film. Yeah, maybe we could we could uh, agree to say it's uh, a sprinkle of Apatow quirk with uh, dry dry Woody Allen humor. There you go. Yeah, yeah, I can I can I can live with that. Throughout this hour or so, we've talked about why we love this film. Why is it worth the general audience member's time to watch this film? You know, I think anyone out there who's looking for a story about someone who's trying to find themselves but it's not a canned story it actually feels like it's something real and it feels like i was saying before it feels like it's a thoughtful it's thoughtfully written i think anyone looking for that would enjoy this film it's it's definitely the type of film that balances that kind of dramatic and comedic elements into something right. that's a little bit different mm -hmm. and unique which i think is great and i think Zach Braff has this vulnerability as a as a lead actor, mm -hmm. which is clearly why he casts himself mm -hmm. in the in the lead role because he kind of you know he wrote this for himself. I think that's the kind of character that a lot of people can relate to, and make this an enjoyable experience watching it. So when I saw this, I was only I was seventeen years old, mm -hmm. and when I saw it in the theater, there were probably four other people in the theater. It mm -hmm. wasn't a widely released film. But I remember coming out of it thinking like, wow, that was really excellent. And, and like I said before, I, I, I thought for sure that Zach Braff was going to do more work. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited to see whatever else he was going to do next. And I remember I, I, I picked up the DVD the first day it came out as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for anybody who's looking for a semi-realistic, I wouldn't say this is hyper-realism, but it's realistic with some unbelievable sort of humor like this doesn't really happen in real life kind of uh sort of bits but it is down to earth it is grounded and just like real life it is an open-ended 
uh, story. The, 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 the ending is very open-ended. We don't know where the characters are going to go, but we saw a little piece of their lives and we fell in love with the characters and we want to revisit them again and again. Yeah, and it's like you were talking about, it's an open-ended ending, but it, it, it's this film is good enough that you, you kind of wonder what happens to these characters. You know, you yeah. kind of care about them. And I think that's important for any good film. It makes you think about it after you're done watching it. Yeah, it makes me think about what's going to happen to the characters and what's going to happen to me in a few years because just like these characters, there's going to be other things that happen to them and each person in both the fictional and the real world is going to have to deal with obstacles and make mistakes. And so uh, we're going to travel with these characters for the rest of our lives. Yeah, and I... I... I won't lie. I'm pretty sure that I, my 17 year old brain, I lived vicariously through <laughs> Zach Braff, you know, briefly in my time, and felt, you know, kind of, kind of imitated him a little bit. Yeah, it's the hoodie. It must be the hoodie. <laughs> All right. So, what are we watching on the next episode of In Out Points? Well, in a near future, a lonely writer develops an unlikely relationship with an operating system designed to meet his every need. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We'll let you figure out what that is next time on In Out Points. With that, I'm Josh. And I'm Val. And we'll see you next time. And sign off.